morning. Hope we're all having a, a good morning this morning. Everybody's been busy getting ready for our fellowship that'll be right after the second service. So I hope you'll, hope you'll stay around. Um, but now we come to Genesis 18 and 19. This is our text for the day. And, and, uh, and I know most of, I look around, and uh, you know that we, we preach expositionally here, which means we, we preach what's next in the text. And what's next this morning is Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, so this we take up this morning. We've been looking at the gospel in Genesis, and we've been seeing this pattern of, of creation and fall and redemption, followed by recreation and in this cycle that's continually going. And over the last couple of weeks, uh, about three, we've been looking at that God is a God of promises, a God of covenant, a God that makes oaths, and a God that is actively involved in his creation. And he personally engages those he created that bears his image. He swears, he promises, and then he acts on those promises. He acts on his own timetable according to his own purposes. And so if, if this was a play, if this was a drama this morning, of which we were walking through this narrative and, and acting this out to recall it in our minds, the backdrop of this is judgment. The backdrop is justice this morning. And so as we seek to do, we can't, we can't bring everything to bear on this text today. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to pick on Lot this morning, as, as oftentimes we go through this text. Lot's not the main point of the text. God is. God's justice is. And so that's going to be our focus this morning. The predominant theme in this text is justice. So I want you to see judgment is sure this morning, but God's grace is amazing. So Abraham has received this ratified covenant and God has given him covenant responsibilities and remember he gave him the covenant of circumcision and, and Abraham, Abraham had obeyed, circumcised all the males in his family. This brings us up to Genesis 18. So we're going to just dive into the narrative this morning. We're not going to stand and read a section. We're just going to dive in at, at Genesis 18 and verse 1. It says, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now, in Genesis 13, 18, it tells us that the oaks of Mamre are near Hebron. So this is where he is. He's near Hebron. And we have this picture that comes at the, at the same time that, that the Lord appears and then he lifts up his eyes. In verse 2, and he sees three men. And you might can't see it in the text because of the translations, but the author the, keeps this tension going through the whole time of these three men, and they're they speaking, and the Lord speaking. So there's a tension here between the appearance of the Lord and these three men. All kind of speculations has gone on about who... Part of these men are, we know two of them are angels. It's said emphatically in the text down. One of them, uh, many people believe this is a 
Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. The author wants to make sure that, that we, he doesn't paint a picture that God has a material body, but that God is present. He has appeared. And so when he looks up, look at verses 2 to 5. We see three men and we see two messages. He looks up, verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran, to the, ran from the tent to door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, this is important, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. And so he kicks in the gear. He tries. He wants to bring them down. He wants to share a meal with them. This was normal. And so did Abraham know at this point that these men were representatives from God? or He knew that the Lord had appeared to him. And if he only suspected them, it wasn't going to take long in a conversation before he knew that he not only he was sitting in the presence of God and receiving a message from God. And so in verses 6 to 8, they sit down and, and had a meal. He goes into Sarah and he says, you know, let's, let's get it done. These men are here. Let's, let's, let's feed them. They sit down. It's very customary. You see even at the end, it says, and he stood by them. At the end of verse 8, he stood by them under the tree while they ate. We spent a lot of time in Romania doing some mission work there. This was part of their culture. When they would feed you, they wouldn't sit with you and eat. They would stand there while you ate, and they would serve you. This was part of their culture. It was, it was a little weird to start with because we were used to saying, Hey, Tony, you'll come up here and just he's going to sit with us. But no, they would serve you. And so we see this happening in this text. This was all covenants were arranged around meals. Meals equaled, meals equaled peace. They're like, they, were, they were Baptist, you know. We've got to eat. We're going to eat in just a little bit. If we're going to talk about something, we might as well eat. This is what they were doing. And, but the angels, these messengers in verse 9, gets to the point. If there's any doubt of who these men were, there wasn't after. He says, where is Sarah, your wife? So this gets to where they're going. They get to the point of the first of the two messages. One is to clarify the promise of Isaac. Now, he's already, they've already been told over and over and over again that you're going to have a promised son, and his name's going to be Isaac. But now, the Lord reveals the timetable. Gives him a timetable. Gives him a time frame. He's like, get out your iPhone and set it on your calendar. This is, this is going to happen. And so there's a time frame set. <coughs> Look at verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent behind him. She had her ear to the door. Now, now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Listen, the way of the, of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And so what was the clarification here of the promise? Saying this time next year, Sarah's going to have a son. Don't miss verse 11. It says, the way of the woman had ceased in her. And we know what that means. It meant that having a child had went from unlikely to impossible. So at this point, Sarah knew it's impossible for me to have a child. Physically, it's just not going to happen. And so she laughs to herself. 
noticed over a few weeks, we keep running into this laughing. Remember, Isaac's name's going to be, he laughs. And notice, and this is this tension, it goes back and forth between the messenger speaking and the Lord speaking. Keeping these things tied together. Look at verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and, and say, Shall I bear a child now that I'm old? So this is one of your first important questions or that's, that's laid out in this text. There's several of them this morning. Is anything, look at verse 14, is anything too hard for God? This is the question that was laid out as Sarah stood behind the, the door, as it were, and she laughed to herself, and now the rebuke comes from God. Look at that word, too hard. This reminds you, it's not in your notes. Matthew 19 26, when Jesus was saying, it's, all, it's, it's hard for a rich man. It's, it's, like, it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so the disciple says, how can anybody be saved? He says, well, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is the mindset. This word is not just simply too hard. It means wonderful. Is anything too wonderful? Wonderful. For God is anything too miraculous is anything too extraordinary for God this is the same word in Isaiah 9 6 where where the Messiah is called a wonderful counselor so here's the point I think the in the commentary somebody put it this way the first message was this the birth of Isaac was a scheduled event as far as the Lord was concerned it might seem impossible, and it was physically impossible, but the Lord said, it's scheduled. It's scheduled. Um, this is the clarity of the promise. And now he gives a second message. The Lord reveals his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Talking about two messages that are polar opposite. One was a promise, but so was the other one. They both had timetables. They both had a timetable. The child will come in a year, but Sodom and Gomorrah is, is fixing to be destroyed now. And so the Lord reveals his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and they could, he knew it when the angels got up. Look at verse 16. It says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. That doesn't mean he went to Sodom with them. It would be like if I went to Bill's house and Bill walked me out to the driveway. You know, he went with him. He got him on his way, but these men looked towards Sodom. Look at verses 17 to 21. This is a soliloquy. In other words, this is, this is for our benefit, the audience, the reader's benefit to understand what's going on on here in the mind of God, in the God, as far as what he's fixing to have a conversation, deliver this message. So in other words, you could look at verse 16. Now look over at verse 22. You could flow right in from verse 16 and verse 22, and they would flow straight together. But we got 17 to 21 because they're going to ask, we're going to get this question, why tell Abraham? In other words, he said, can I hide this from Abraham? Why would God tell him? Why would God not execute his justice? 
He gives two reasons. Look what he says in verse 18. He said, Abraham, let's read it. Look at verse 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham to what he has promised him. So he answers it two ways. He said, Abraham's going to be a blessing to the nations. I can't hide them. But listen, here's what he's saying. He's not going to be a blessing to that one. It's not. Time's up for Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah had lost the opportunity. The timetable for, for judgment was now. The second, Abraham was to teach his children, his posterity, about righteousness and justice. In other words, he's fixing to get a theological lesson on what justice is. And what justice demands, justice demands something. We have to understand that. It's not open for our interpretation of what justice means. God is fixing to show it to him. You see, we all have a natural inclination towards a high view of man and a skeptical view of God. And here's what he's writing today in our minds. And he's, he's saying, you're going to teach your children about this day. There is righteousness and there is justice. So two important words then that we need to understand. What is righteousness? What is justice? Very simple definitions. More could be said. Righteousness means to live in conformity to God's will. To live in conformity to God's will. Justice then is to make right decisions based on His will. What's What's God's will based on? God's will is based on His character. He decides based on who He is. So now what He's saying to Abraham, these now becomes more clarity and righteousness and you pursue justice. These are covenant responsibilities. Turn with me to Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8. That covenant responsibility sounds strange to you. When I, for inheriting the promise, now we see, we see these become conditions. Just look back at the so that. We listened to last week's message on that. Micah 6, 8, very emphatically clear. And he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Same message. Here's what the Lord is, is telling. He's going to tell Abraham, I'm going to go down and I'm going to investigate. This is the word. I'm going to go down. I'm going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah myself. I'm going to investigate. Look at verse 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. You see, I want you to notice a word that's in there twice, outcry. 
We're learning something about justice just from that word. We have a region that is completely engulfed in wickedness. We're going to look at that in a minute. And something is crying out. Outcry means a loud accusation against someone. What is it? Justice demands judgment. The wickedness that is going on, there is a cry that's going out. And it's not just the wickedness crying out, it's God's justice crying out, and He cries out against wickedness for justice. He said it's grave. Look at verse 20. Their sin is very grave. That means heavy, weighty, grievous. And I'm going to go down and I'm going to see. This looks like what we talked about, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. You remember? We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build this big tower. We're going to build this big city. We don't need God. God says, I'm going to go down and I'm going to see the word and bring to the ends complete. Abraham hears this. He begins to intercede for Sodom. Remember, he's already saved them one time. Now he intercedes for them. Verses 22 and 23. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. That's important. We're going to come back to where he's standing at the end. Then Abraham drew near to the Lord and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's your next really important question. The first one was, is anything too hard for God? The second is, this question. The question that he poses, Abraham's making appeal to God's character, you see. God? Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You see, he was, he was firmly convinced that there was, there was some righteous people in this region. There's a lot of people down there. Think about looking over someplace like Charlotte and saying, there's got to be a, a handful of righteous people in there. That's just what he's saying. So the, we go through this interchange with this question. And this question will follow through this whole rest of the narrative. So Abraham's conclusion, if God destroys the righteous with the wicked, God's not just, and so God can't do that. So surely, surely we can talk about this thing. So what's the point of this whole back and forth with, with, uh, with Abraham and God here talking? There's not ten righteous people in there's not. There's not ten righteous in there. And God is just in destroying. That was the, that's, that's where he comes down to. So there's a contrast of not only righteousness and justice and understanding that, but righteousness, righteous, the righteous and the wicked. There are righteous people and there are wicked people. Righteousness. People who are joined to God by faith and living according to his standards of obedience. And those that are wicked have no part of the covenant and no interest in God's standards. Psalms 1, verses 5 and 6. We know this text, don't we? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and of water so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So to enjoy God's covenant blessings, 
God's people promote righteousness and justice. But Sodom was not one of those places. Sodom and Gomorrah was not one of those places. They were wicked. And so the Lord God judges the wicked in righteousness. And we see that in, in chapter 19. So these men, these angels, in 19.1, enter into the wicked cities. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And so these two men are clearly here said these were angels, these were messengers from God. There's been all kind of speculations like we talked before. The two angels went to Sodom and the one went to Gomorrah. I don't, it doesn't say that. And uh, where the scripture is silent, we are silent. These two men are said specifically, they enter into Sodom and Lot is sitting at the gate, which means he has a position of leadership. He's an authority there. And he greets them. Look at verse 2. It says, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. And if you think about how Abraham greeted them, he said, Lord. Here he says, My lords. This is different. Lot does not know who these men are. He's being hospitable. Look at verse 3. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and ate them. The key word there is press them. They said, no, no, we'll sleep out there. And he pressed on them, no, no, you, you come into my house. I'm going to prepare a meal for you. You'll be safe. He knew the city that he abided in, so he pressed on them. And so there's two pressings that happen in this narrative. He pressed them to stay with him. And then when they go to bed, verse 4 happens, the wicked men surround the house and they begin to press on Lot. But before they lay down, verse 4, the men, listen, this isn't clear, he's being very clear here, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Every person, small to young, saw fresh meat come into the city, two men coming into the city, and so the men surrounded the house. This grave sin coming into your mind now, <laughs> what the gravity that God is saying is grave? Romans 1, verse 24 and verse 27 gives us even more clarity on the gravity of this sin of Sodom. Therefore, Romans 1, 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. Listen, this is the point. This is what's happening and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Here's what the men of the city gathered around to these two men who come in. Bring them out that we might know them. It's where we get our word sodomy. They had every intention. You see, if, I don't know if you've ever studied it before, but this is, this is the way sexual perversion works. You see, sexual addiction or physical addictions like drugs and alcohol, you will consume 
more and more alcohol, but with sexual perversion, it just doesn't get wider, it always gets deeper. And one click on the internet will lead you to child pornography every day. The end of sexual perversion always gets not only wider, but it gets deeper, and so it did in Sodom. So we, we ask ourselves, isn't it clear the grave sin that brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? Isn't it clear? <laughs> we have Lot. Not messing with Lot very much, but Lot gives this hypocritical alternative. In other words, take my daughters. <laughs> don't do this. He says, don't do this wicked thing, but take my, take my two young daughters, never known a man. Here, do with them as, as you please. But you see, the, the men were locked in on what they wanted, and so they pressed on Lot. And if it wasn't for the angels pulling them back in and striking the men blind, they would have took Lot as well. So two men with two messages. This event triggers an urgency in the message. There's an urgency here. An urgency of both destruction and deliverance. The wheels start turning fast at this point. If you were, if you were in a play, the music would be, would be playing fast, would be building up. This is the urgency here. Verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you any, anyone else here, son-in-law, sons, daughters, and anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Clear. Who's bringing the destruction? God is. The outcry has come before him. He has investigated and found them guilty, and the judge has uttered his judgment. And so Lot goes to his son-in-laws, and he says, we've got to get out of this place. Judgment comes, and they don't take him serious. They don't listen to him. They were men of the city. And now we see a merciful deliverance for Lot. Look at verse 15 and 16. One, one Listen to this. As morning dawned, verse 15, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So I ask you, this merciful seizing, was it not love? Was it not love? They didn't say, well, we don't want them to be mad at us. No, the angels grabbed them, and he took them out of the city and says, go that way lest you be caught up. So we see the mercy of God in his deliverance for Lot and his two daughters, and this brings this another negotiation for Lot. It's an interesting conversation from verse 17 to 20. But I don't want you to miss this. And so Lot wants to go to Zoar, and it's a little town. Listen, look at verse 21. It's important. We could just read right over this. He said to him, Behold, I grant this favor. Now, that, this is the angels talking. I grant you this favor also, and I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. In other words, he answers the question. Will God destroy the wicked, the righteous with the wicked? 
And because Lot and his daughters go into Zoar, they are spared. But for Sodom and Gomorrah, there is nothing but complete destruction. Verse 23 and 24. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew the cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. He overthrew the entire area. In other words, what they grew yesterday was destroyed. What they built yesterday was destroyed and so were they. There were no survivors. Even Lot's wife who looked back was caught up in the destruction. So, Sodom and Gomorrah become a metaphor for the wrath of God on wickedness. And what we say is, well, that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. So I want you to do two things. I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy 2.6. 2, not 2 Timothy, I'm sorry. 2 Peter. I want to add 2 Timothy in my mind. 2 Peter 2.6. I want you to hold it with your hand in your Bible. And then flip over right before Revelation. It's a little small book called Jude. I want you to hold Jude. Look at verse 7. Find verse 7 with me. Hold, that, hold your place in that. Now flip back to 2 Peter 2.6. I want you to see this. 2 Peter 2.6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what, he is, what is going to happen to the ungodly. What is Sodom and Gomorrah for us? It is simply an example of what is going to happen. Now flip over with me. Hold your place in 2 Peter. Flip over with me to Jude, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So these two passages working together could not be clear that what Sodom and Gomorrah show us is simply an example of the eternal fire that is to come of the judgment when God brings judgment that He has promised. So flip back with me to 2 Peter now and let's finish as we see both a promise of judgment but a reminder of mercy. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed, and this is important to try to understand Lot because I know we all have trouble with some things that Lot did and we should. But listen to this. Verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day, day after day, he was tormented his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. So if you're me, we just need to take a breath at this and say, God, we need some good news. <laughs> we need some good news. 
How, Lord, how would what is wrong be made right? So I want you to think about this scene as the scene closes. We have this picture, verses 28 and 29, of Abraham looking towards Sodom. You remember, it says he, verse 28, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. This was verse 22, when he stood in that same place and he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. And now he stands there, and it's all gone. They're not there. Every person that was there yesterday is gone, and everything that they built, their Sodomite dreams were gone. Abraham looked over and saw it. What was he thinking? You see, there were three righteous in the city, and God spared them all. And in sparing them, we are reminded of Abraham's intercession and God's answer to his prayer. So what today? Two gospel promises. Brothers and sisters, we have abandoned the truth. If we leave out the judgment, we are not proclaiming the gospel. The gospel must proclaim there is a just judge and all of our sinful deeds, all of our goodness is filthy rags and screams to God, justice. Romans 2, verse 5 and 6, God will judge the wicked. He has promised it. But because of the heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those by patience and well-doing for the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. For those who are hard and unrepentant, the message the gospel message today is God is storing up his wrath. And there is coming a day when he will step into time and space as the judge of all the earth. Matthew eleven twenty four. Jesus had went and was preaching. He was preaching the message to his own hometown and to the own region where he grew up. He was doing signs and he was doing wonders and all these, all these things and they rejected him. And in Matthew eleven twenty four, 24, he says to them, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the, for the land of Sodom than for you. Why? Because you, you've seen Jesus the Messiah and if, and if I would have been in Sodom and I would have declared this message and I would have done these miracles, they would have repented and you've rejected me. Therefore, it will be worse for you on the judgment than them. I want you to see a text, not in your notes, it's on the screen. Ezekiel 18, verse 21 to 23. Listen to the heart of God. You've got to get this. Don't, don't stop listening. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. 
None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Listen to the heart of God here. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that they should turn from his way and live? This is the declaration today. Turn and live. God has provided his son. And he has satisfied God's justice. For those that are in Christ, justice has been satisfied. And more than that, he has declared us righteous in his son. Romans 3.21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is what been, has been made manifest. The righteousness of God in the person of Christ given to all who believe. You see, there is no distinction. Why? Look at verse 23. Because all have sinned. All have sinned. All have fell short of the glory of God. Therefore, verse 24, all are justified by grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. What does that redemption look like? Look at the text. Whom God put forward, verse 25, as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. In other words, God put forth His Son as a wrath-removing substitute for you. He put Him forward. How do we? It's received by faith. Believe on Christ, what he's, who He is, what He's done. This, to, this was to show God's righteousness because of His divine forbearance. He passed over former sins. Why? Because He's unjust? No. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He, Christ, might be just and the justifier for those who have faith in Him. Christ stands alone as the one who satisfied that justice that screams for judgment. God took it. God in the flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus satisfied what justice demanded. Jesus satisfied. And yet, are we saying those sodomites just got what they deserved? Yes, they did. But Jesus took your Sodom. He took your Sodom. He bore your wrath. He satisfied God's justice and gave you righteousness to the praise of His own glory. And if you are one of those who have been clutched from the fires of just hell, you will always remember, you will always smell that sulfur that you deserved and God has showed you mercy and God has told you, go proclaim the gospel to them. You're not worried about their feelings. You're worried about their soul. God's justice demands judgment, but He has provided a Savior, and He gives to all those who believe a message. There is a God who loves you, who has provided a Savior, and this salvation produces something, holiness in your actual life. Your growth group lesson will tease that out even more. Stand with me. Stand with me for prayer. Lord, we end our time together as our, our praise team comes.
thinking about your word, I know no better way to pray. That you declare us righteous in your sight by your own mercy. And then you set out in our actual life to make us righteous so that we can make you look good. So now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let us worship our Lord, our Savior.